Hi, I'm Sam Simon, and I'm the grandpa, and I always think deep. Hi, I'm Emily Simon. I'm the granddaughter, and I'm always wondering, in every conversation we have, why does grandpa always think deep? Hi, Grandpa. I just How's it going? I'm, I'm doing okay. You know, I just came back from a trip to El Paso, Texas. I was going to say, right, that's where you grew up, right? The, well, yeah, you've been there a couple of times. Yes, I mean, I knew that. I knew that. <laughs> it was sort of a consequential trip. and Really? A couple of things happened that I thought might be worth talking about today. Reminded me a little bit about you. Yeah, you know, because a lot of different things happen and we could talk about some of them. I guess the one that struck me most and actually sort of bothered me a bit, I was talking to, you know, we have a few relatives there and just by way of, I was born in El Paso, Texas a long time ago. That was in 1945. But our family, we had a very large family. And yeah. Interesting. How big was it? Well, let's see. On my mother's side, they came in the early 1900s. She was born in 1907. And, well, she probably came with her family. So her father, Harry Alfred, yes. and her mother, Ernestine Altman, born Ernestine Clinover, came in the 20s. She was a teenager. And they had, I think there were seven children. A lot of kids. A lot of kids. But the reason they came to El Paso, there were seven girls and one boy. And the boy, Sam Alpin, had tuberculosis. And back in the day, they didn't know how to cure tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. and a, lot of, a lot of people don't know this, but El Paso, Texas, is at the end of the Rocky. And while everybody thinks about deserts in West Texas... They're considered a high altitude with thinner air, and the doctors suggested that that would be a good destination. So they came, and they were actually welcomed by the rabbi there. Oh, wow. And at the train station, they took the train. And where they'd been living in New Orleans before, right? They had lived in New Orleans. And my mother was born in Pensacola, Florida. My grandfather, her parents moved to New Orleans, and then they came to tuberculosis. I recently, doing family research, found that one of her sisters also had tuberculosis, and they both eventually died from it. But Sam Alpin was the brother. They were met by the rabbi of the Reformed Temple, and Sam Alpin became the secretary to the rabbi there. So our, and while they were there, they, obviously she met my dad, your grandfather, Marcus Simon, by the same name as your father. And they got married. So when I go back, and there's a lot of our history there. It's history because they became very prominent, or that's a good way, important members of the Jewish community. So not only was my uncle and my mother's brother a, a secretary to the rabbi of the Reformed Temple, my grandfather, Harry Alfman, it turned out, and I sort of knew this, but I, we talked about it this trip. He was a founding member of the conservative synagogue there called B'nai Zion. And I had dinner with 
the widow of, of my first cousin, Lenore Coburn, Sam Coburn, who was my first cousin. Also, his, his mother, Etta Coburn, was Etta Simon. So we're talking a lot of... Wait, hold on. I, I'm, I'm a little bit lost. No, we're talking a lot of genealogy. So, so can we can do some confirming here? Yes. So the Alfman side was your mother's side, and they came, and they were New Orleans. They were greeted by the Reform Rabbi, yes. and they were members of the Reform Congregation. Yes. And then who was one of the people who established the conservative congregation? So the grandfather, Harry Altman, was one of the founding members. Interesting. Very, very interesting. And in fact, when I had dinner with my cousins, one of them is a on the board of B'nai Zion, said he has seen the list of the founding members and the amount they donated. Now, he didn't tell me how much my grandfather, their great-grandfather, donated. But it's very, very interesting to me and to have such a a big history. So many of our family are buried there and are remembered there in many prominent ways. And I sort of feel an obligation, even though I've been away for a long time, and none of our immediate family, other than these cousins, are there now to keeping my connection to that and hoping some of my <clears throat> grandchildren might also develop a connection back there. You know what that means? It means you're going to have to go to El Paso every, every now and then. Every now and then. Well, it's, I don't know. It just feels like you know we're really tied to there, but that's not what struck me. What struck me... Yes. The, the people I talk to are not very encouraged about the future of the Jewish El Paso. Interesting. That they were all talking about the trends. So let me try to explain. My cousin Barry and his brother Scott. Yes. They're you're a little older than your dad. So they're between your dad and me. All right. They age and they have adult children. All have moved away from El Paso. Yeah. That's the drumbeat. All the young people are moving away from El Paso. And, you know, the size of the Jewish community has shrunk, at least in terms of membership. And so even when we met with the rabbi of the Reformed congregation, he wasn't as discouraged, but he was talking about how there are fewer Jewish people in El Paso. And I guess what bothered me is I didn't hear visions on their part about how they were going to recover or change or how to reverse the trends. And what bothered me about it was not that it's a difficult task and they're not that there were these people are necessarily unrealistic. It's that they didn't have a vision for what they wanted it to be. Interesting. So this is grandpa's deep thoughts on that is and I said it to the rabbi there, if you can't imagine the future you want You'll never get it. And what do you think about that idea? I mean, absolutely. I think, yeah, you have to have a vision of what you want. And if you have no vision, then no one will want to join you in trying to create that vision, right? So that could be why young people are leaving. They don't see a vision. Well, I don't know. I don't put it on the young people because it's, I don't know, it was interesting. El Paso is a complicated town. There's a lot of stuff happening there. The University of Texas in El Paso, where I grew up, it was called Texas Western Inn, has 
grown enormously. It's been designated one of the Department of Defense's research centers. That's because there's a big military presence. And yeah, you know, so it's becoming a regional Southwest medical center. There are new hospitals and there's Texas Tech has set up a medical school in El Paso. None of those were there. And so I don't know what it is why they don't think there are people who are Jewish in the town or joining, but that's really not my point. Young people, though, seem to think they need to go to Austin or to Houston to where all the action is, or Dallas, which are bigger cities by population. And that seems to be what what's part of it. And I'll touch on a sensitive issue is that it's becoming much more of a Hispanic town. And that that isn't, you know, it's not that there aren't Hispanic Jewish people, but they're not nearly as prevalent as Anglo or different heritages. But it wasn't all negative. You know, I drove by, went to the house we grew up. I sent you a picture. Maybe we'll yeah. get a picture up. You were with us once when we drove by there. Yes, yes, yes. I saw it. I remember what it looked like. And walked the neighborhood. And I wonder whether people, other people remember the older ones who listened to this. We need to get some young thought on all this. <laughs> you know, just walking the old neighborhood, nobody's there. It's been, I'm 77. I left when I was 20, so 57 years ago. There is nobody in the same neighborhood that I knew of. But the history of almost every house, oh, did this with that guy who lived there, and he was in high school, and this is where the across the street the Schwartzes lived, and they were Holocaust survivors. And there's Henry de la Garza, my so, you know, my mother didn't, he was Hispanic, he lived on the street. My mother was a little cautious about it. He's converted to Judaism, lives in Houston. So it's an interesting trip back to home. Yeah, of course it is. I'm sure I'll feel that way someday about Vols Church. <laughs> One day. But so what you said, you said you want young thoughts on this, but I just what exactly is it that you want young thoughts on? I am having trouble. Well, I'm not sure. You know, I guess maybe I should ask you a question. How attached do you feel to coming back home or going to, say, living in New York, which I wouldn't mind doing, or going to another country to grow up? Do you feel, um, obviously, I felt that way. I wanted to, I went to law school and I had to go to Washington to change the world. That's me. I still think I've got to do that. I'm not going to ever stop doing that. Do you have any energy? Do you see people like that? Do you see folk is, the university there, a commuter, a heavily commuter town? It's not a heavily commuter. I think uh, there are definitely are commuter students, absolutely. It's just that there like, aren't that many people in Delaware. Like I think about like George Mason University, which is in Northern Virginia, which is where I live. And that's very heavily commuter, but that's also just because there are a lot of people who live in Northern Virginia. Like It's very dense around the university. Like There's a lot of people who live within driving distance, even if it is kind of far, of George Mason. So... I think just because of the density, you see people who are commuter. The University of Delaware does have a decent number of commuter students, not as many as school like George Mason, but I think that's just because of the population. Population-wise, there just aren't as many people in this northern part of Delaware, north of the canal. That's what they say in Delaware. There's a canal heading the Delaware Bay and the Chesapeake Bay, and north of it is where a lot of like the development around like Wilmington is part of like the greater Philly like metro area. So that's sort of... Yeah, people who live... Yeah, I would say... Hmm. I mean, there was, so I would say there's a decent number of commuters, but most people, I'd say the majority are not. 
but that's also my kind of bias. They have a skew, you know? I mostly interact with people who are not commuter students because I, I live in a dorm. And I'd say for the most part, people are not commuter. A lot of people from Jersey. So a people who will, that's, that's a commuter. That's a commuter. No. But I guess what I'm thinking about a little bit is, are they talking about going home? Or are they talking about, you know, in a little bit, you know, there's a thought. This is where I was thinking about going with this conversation. But there was a great amount of unrest when I was going to college. And when I say unrest, I'm talking about public unrest. It was mainly anti-war and civil rights. And so people were there and wanting to go get involved in those challenges. And El Paso today is in the middle of the immigration battle. While we were there, there were immigrants coming to the town, so many from Juarez. So for people who may not know, El Paso is on the border. It is a border town. It is on the Rio Grande, which we grew up didn't have any water in it. But, it's not a whole lot of water from what I remember when I went. And, you know, people can walk across and the river and just sneak up, but they're being caught on the, once they're in America, they have to be treated by the law. There was a thing going on while we were there where they, where so many didn't have, were having camps to be set up and they were struggling on how to handle it, which is part of this larger. This was like last week. Yeah, just last week. And so there is disruption of this gigantic immigration debate going on now. So in some ways it's similar. There, There's all sorts of We've talked about the claims of fraudulent election and, you know, all sorts of things going on. So I, it goes back to, are the college students thinking about, do you have a sense of, well, when I graduate, I want to go back home. When I graduate, I want to go change things, find jobs, and, you know, or is it too early? Yeah. No, absolutely. There was a lot of parts of that question there, so I'll do my best to answer it. So definitely... We're picking up where we left off. So there are commuter students, absolutely. It's interesting because UD is right off I-95. And it's right, Delaware is like right in the middle. Like, so there's Philly right there. There's New York two hours north, DC two hours south. And so it's like this, I think it's called like a mega, it, it's, like, it's a mega city. It's in the middle of this mega, megalopolis. I think it's what they call it, of like the Boswash megalopolis. Like Boston's kind of on the periphery, but most people, like from Boston to DC, it's like this one big megalopolis. And it, UD, right, life right in the middle of it, right off the biggest highway. So for a lot of people, UD is not that far from home. Like, it's far, but, like, it's not that far. Um, there are a lot of people from the Philly area. There are also people from further away. Some people like to go home. They go home every break. They go home on weekends sometimes, and they're very attached to their homes, even if they're not commuter if they live here. And then there are some people who, like, are, like I do they never want to go home. They They... Stay here they go home for like thanksgiving maybe they go somewhere else on spring break they do summer sessions at ud so there's definitely a range here there's definitely a range as sophomore it's kind of a bit early to think about where you want to like live for the rest of your life i haven't really talked to anyone else about it or asked anyone about it because it seems far away on um, only the beginning of my sophomore year yeah it might depend on your profession and what who you meet and your job opportunities but I can say personally, there's definitely a feeling of I want to do stuff to change the world. And there's definitely other students who feel that way as well. And there are also plenty of students who don't feel that way, just want to get a regular job and settle down and have a nice life. And so I'd say there's definitely a mix of people here in terms of ambitions and life. And that's also not to say, like, 
whatever your ambitions in life are, like that's it's valid. Like there's no right or wrong way to live your life. And I think I use that to take a little bit off of some of how I was feeling because you get talking about that visit to El Paso, and when your family has lived someplace a very long time, mm-hmm. one of the most important places is the cemetery. Absolutely. So we took a trip. We went, spent time in the cemetery. We, you know, all those people who came in the early 1900s are buried there. And so, you know, all my mother's sisters are buried there. Sam Alpin is buried there. And so it is a pullback to where you're born. You know, we went to a big, we, your grandmother and I, had to, we're going to be buried there because we wanted, you know, it was like, how will Emily and Zach and Sydney and Joanna know about their history? Well, we'll be buried in El Paso and they'll have to come see us waving. <laughs> and then did all the other graves. What a gruesome yeah. sounding thing. But it, it was a thought we had. And, but if instead, because our, your dad lives here and your aunt Rachel, our daughter, lives in, Maryland decided instead to set up a bench with called a pointer. So we have the names of, you know, it said, well, if you want to see where the children of Marcus and Freedom, my parents are buried, well, you know, you have to go to, one's going to be in West Point, one's going to be in Dallas, and we're going to be here. So we have pointers to anybody who might be doing research. But it it was just an interesting thing, and I, you know, When I say that, it's not small. I discovered, for example, I did not know about, and I don't know why it was never mentioned to me, but I didn't know who my great-grandfather was. One day in the cemetery, I was looking looking at a plot of cousins from the Simon side, Mm -hmm. and they had a rather sort of a area that was dedicated to their family of an Anna Simon, and... In the back was this marker. It said, Anna Kivo, wife of Marcus Simon. And I said, well, that's not true. That's my dad. Made it. And then we found out that he was my great-grandfather. So he had a Marcus Simon, a Sidney Simon, my grandfather, and then my father. And that was after we had named your dad. Because your dad's named after my father. So I find this history to learn about where you come from and your background and your family really important. So I think Honoring memory of those in your family, I think is very important. Important point, yeah. Grandpa. I don't know if it's a grandkids yet. Maybe that's one of the I things. Important. I mean, no, absolutely, it's important. Remember, you come from, and if we don't transmit these stories from generation to generation, they just get lost. Yeah, and then almost as a part of the larger global conversation going on when you, particularly from Europe, where the Altmans, you know, talking about Harry Altman who came from Poland. And on the Simon side, they came a little close to Russia, but my grandmother, my father's mother, which is Clara Blonder, her family came from Kiev, around Kiev, not right in Kiev, mm-hmm. which is in the news today. So you like to know your heritage. And so those are trips back home. That was my trip to El Paso. Yeah. And we got to, got to spend time with cousins and Try to in tour where you grew up and place it on the memories that that brings. But so were our memories at college because both your mom and I met at college, so maybe you'll meet somebody at college. 
not foreseen or anything like that. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we did not have Hillel. You have Hillel there. Interesting. I was a Sammy or Sigma Alpha Mu. Is it Greek, Terry? We, we not Greek. Yeah. That's Greek life. AUD. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a big deal there, a little deal? It's a pretty big deal. Though. Definitely a lot of people do it, but I've heard that there are other schools where it's much more prevalent. It's like, you know, it's like if you're not in Greek life, like there's like nothing else for you to really do. But AUD is absolutely not like that. And for the people who join it, like they love it. There's also like a bajillion other things to do. And that's one of the things I like about it. Cool. And you told me, remind me, just grandpa has a bad memory. You're the president of a, an environmental group or an emerging environmental group. Yes, I am. I'm the president of Sunrise Newark, which is a part of the larger national sunrise movement. We do like climate advocacy, like very political kind of advocacy. There are some other there are some other environmental groups on campus, but they do like one of them is just kind of like, yeah, let's like do some things like I don't know, like this week they made like vegan snacks or whatever because I feel really bad. I don't really do advocacy. They just kind of do like personal action. Then that's not, not that that's bad. And that's kind of what they do. There's like the Environmental Justice Project, which is like Al Gore's thing that he does. So there are definitely a lot of other environmental groups on campus, but Sunrise Network, we do the political advocacy. We had a meeting yesterday and no one showed up to it, so we have to work on recruitment. But yeah. Um, so, so the goal of Sunrise, let's talk about that for a second. The vision of the Sunrise idea is that it rises every day. Is that right? Well, yeah, the idea is... Well, they said like, we're going to make change in this country. Like, surely it's the sunrise it's each day. Like, that's like the sort of the phrase that came as the inspiration from the name of the movement. Yeah. So that's where that name comes from. Okay. You know, I don't think I was involved in anything quite like that. I was involved in the student council. My work then was I was an ROTC student. Yeah. Supporting my friend Ken, who was an anti war student. I think that's pretty similar. That's advocacy and stuff. Yes, but it's complicated <laughs> because the military types didn't particularly like that. But listen, I think that's enough reminiscing. So that's what happened to Grandpa. He went back home to uh, visit, and he's been thinking about the people and what's left there and the name and the reputation of the family from its early days, and they're still a prominent group. But, you know, communities change, and new leadership comes, and that's... They have, uh, you know, clearly the grandpa thinks deep. This is a lot of Jewish content to our conversations. Yeah. And, you know, I see about that. But I think I'm looking forward to our next podcast and we'll think of something even deeper. <laughs> I won't talk today about the conference in Indianapolis that I went to about people with dementia, but we'll, we can talk about that. I also visited your great aunt, Marion. How's she doing? How's Aunt Marion? Aunt Marion's hanging in there, but reason comes up. Talk about important relatives. She was, as far as we understand, the first full-time female reporter ever hired by the Dow Jones Company. But no, Dang. other than World War II. Oh, wow. So maybe we'll even have her as part of a conversation sometime. It's interesting. You talked about advocacy and how you and your friends were engaged in advocacy. And I think that uh, maybe this would be isn't a conversation for another time. But you asked me a big question with a lot of parts. I only answered one of those parts. I asked about like people and like going home. And then you asked about like political climate on campus or like are people engaged in that stuff? But I think absolutely people are engaged in that stuff. Actually, the university kind of encourages people to be engaged in that stuff. And they definitely do a lot of work to promote civil discourse. Are you familiar with that concept? Yep. That's a thing that used to be 
sometime back in history. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're trying to bring it back. <laughs> so, yeah, we actually, as part of like your public policy 110, which is like the intro to public policy class, they have a guest, they had a guest lecturer come in and talk about the importance of civil discourse. And basically what it is, it's, it's like about having conversations with people in which each party goes into the conversation with the intent of at least trying to understand the perspective of the other. Not necessarily agree with, but at least to understand. And go into it with the intent that you want to walk away with at least something. Uh, something it's understanding. And sometimes the understanding, you're like, okay, I see where you're coming from, but like also no. Or you might say, hey, wait a minute, you actually made, you, you made a point there. And that made me think. Maybe it'll change the way you think. So that's basically what civil discourse is. You know, I, that's a really deep... Yeah, and they, they do... I think people always talk about, oh, they cancel cultural college campuses. I was using air quotes in case you couldn't tell. But I feel like at UD, they actually do a really good job of promoting civil discourse, having real conversations about real issues. So the challenge of civil discourse, yeah, in part, is mm -hmm. when one side feels unheard. Then there is civil disobedience. So civil discourse, it's an interesting thing. I'm going to jump to modern history. Are you talking about in like broader society? Because most of the I was talking when we were learned about civil discourse, it was very much on like a person to person level. Well, but but the purpose of it is persuasion. It isn't just that. Now, if the purpose of civil discourse is, oh yeah, interesting. Well, I understand. I think it's more understanding than persuasion, and persuasion can come sometimes as sort of a byproduct of understanding. Well, civil discourse is also a technique of preventing change. So. Huh. Let me give you a quick example here. Okay. You know that I was working for Ralph Nader and I was a consumer. Oh, you always talk about that, yes. Wrong. Well, consumer advocate. Yes. Yes. And this is what I say. And I was the head of an organization called the Telecommunications Research and Action Center, or TRAC. And I was a prominent consumer voice in consumer rights and telephone and in broadcasting. And there was a change in administration and a new president appointed Mark Fowler. And there was a time I was feeling important. I could get an appointment with the chairman of the FCC and he'd have come and talk and listen. And, and I realized after a period of time, it was a technique. It was to keep me on the sidelines. They would keep talking to me, but never do anything I wanted or change or agree with me. They had a big agenda to undo whatever the last administration had done. Yeah. Putting me off to the side was just what they wanted to do. And they weren't listening. So they were polite. And so it gets complicated. I want to go back to- Oh, that's, we actually talked about when we learned about it, we were like, civil discourse does not always mean being polite. Civil discourse means that you're listening and understanding and truly hearing the other person. And sometimes it can appear to be polite, but if you're just acting polite and you're not truly listening, you're not truly hearing the other person, that's not what civil discourse is. Well, you know, one of the big challenges of today, and I under, and we may have mentioned this before, I understand it may have had, had been true to older people in the 60s and 70s, the 60s and 70s when I was in school, that they thought that country was in peril and nobody was listening because, because there were Black Panthers on the street, there were Students for Democrat SDS, there were bombings, there were shootings on Kent State and the like. People today are demonizing the other. 
it's as if you don't have a right to be here. Rather than I believe in this policy and you don't, I think you're really wrong, that instead I'm, I'm listening today on our TV today of an ad by the Republicans against a Democratic congresswoman. And it demonizes her, you know, that she's against America. She takes only money for herself. She pocketed money. You know, she's not for America. She's against police. Rather than the Democrats believe in greater government involvement, they want to help decide how you, when we Republicans think you have to earn your, you know, or whatever it is. But demonizing the other and suggesting they don't have a right to be here is where we've moved to it. It's really dangerous. I think that's a new thing. It's not really new. But it's like to a greater extent than it used to be. But it's on the sentence and it's and it's much greater. There was a history of a congressman by the name of McCarthy. This was oh, yes. And he used the same technique that there were communists in the country and they had to be brought out and punished and or sent away. Uh, they didn't have a right to be present. And we are seeing things today, the idea of using immigrants and putting them on planes or buses as if they weren't human, but they were tools in a debate, that they didn't have the dignity and right to be treated as human. They may didn't have a right to be in the country, but they're like pawns on the chessboard. So at any rate, I think we've got off of my memoir trip to El Paso, <laughs> and we can come back to that. Yeah. Too, but I think I started the next podcast. I think, I, well, no, I think come back to this at the start of our next podcast. You know, what it means to live in a civil society. We chatted about that before. And the challenges of civility and disagreement and power. I would love to talk about that. Okay. So let's do that. So let's don't keep hesitating here. I think we've had a great podcast. Give it a wrap. Give it a wrap. We've given a wrap and hopefully people will leave comments and you know, give us some suggestions also for topics. But I think, you know, the trip to El Paso helps highlight the generational differences and changes. So yeah. thanks for your time this morning. And thanks to our producer back there, Jimmy. Thanks. Thank you, Jimmy. Shout out to Jimmy as always. All right. Goodbye, everyone. See you next podcast. Goodbye. Bye.